0: What's up, y'all? This is Mikey Noshel. And this is Andrew Chapman. Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We wanted to let you know that we have a five-day silent meditation retreat coming up September 1st through the 5th, and it's going to be in
1: Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. That's right. You can find all of the information on floweringlotusmeditation.org under Upcoming Retreats, and it is called Peace Within the Wild Heart. It is a five-day silent meditation retreat located an hour outside of New Orleans. It's good for both beginning and experienced meditators. We will have instructional talks, group interviews, and it is just a blast. So come out and sit with us. Yeah, right on. And as always,
0: if you wanted to support Wild Heart Meditation Center and this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate wherever you are listening to this to help people find us. And if you'd like to financially support us through donation, uh, you can do so through Venmo at Wild Heart Nashville. As always, peace and love. I hope you enjoy. So Andrew got a hold of me like a few days ago and was like, hey, you want to teach the Wednesday night together? And of course, I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it together. Let's teach together. This is our uh, I've been keeping count. 150th time teaching together. Really? No, no I have no clue. But it, it feels <laughs> like that. You've got a good memory. <laughs> but we've been teaching a lot together, so it's become quite natural. And we uh, were searching for a topic to teach on, and and we really didn't land on one. So uh, something that I like to do every once in a while are these ask-it baskets because I I, I can come from a quite authoritative role on this stage and tell you what you need to know, but I also wanna hear what you want to explore in our discussions. And so this ask it basket is, you we have pens, we have papers, and you anonymously write something down that you wanna know, and then we'll put it in the bowl here. Um, So as we're passing these around, if we have any, uh, yeah, thank you. As we're passing these around, we should probably tell you a little bit about ourselves so you know who and what uh, we have to offer here. So, for for me, that uh it was about uh 2 years ago now, I was fully empowered as a Buddhist teacher in Theravada and Mahayana traditions. I was given this wonderful name Rogahari Sokatura. Uh, which means healer of the broken heart, uh, gifted me from the venerable Paniwadi and Panadipa. And so I am empowered in these two traditions. And in this empowerment, uh, uh, Paniwadi told me that I am authorized to give Dharma names. And I'm halfway serious about this, <laughs> that we were talking about Andrew the other day. And Andrew is like, um, just like so confident and brilliant guy and i uh, teach so often with him and to be around this presence of confidence and uh, intellect and a big ass heart it's so great to see that he's always wearing these like short shorts Uh, we went to a treatment center one time and I, i taught with him at a treatment center and he just walks in and just demands the whole room and everybody's hanging on to every word he says and he's wearing these like really short shorts shorter than that uh, so we started calling him uh, Jungabala, and Jungabala is poly for strength of the leg. So I have been empowered to offer this dharma name to to Andrew Jungabala, strength of the leg. So it, from now on, he's no longer Andrew. He's Jungabala, strength of the leg. So. Uh, uh, And, okay, so going back to the... I don't know, do you have anything to say about this? About Jangabala? Jangabala. I accept it, man, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. And so we come from this place that me, uh, I'm empowered. I started in Zen and really took on the insight tradition for a while, if you're following that Buddhist circles. I also have a master's in counseling psychology, and in my day-to-day work, I provide work as a Buddhist pastoral counselor. So... Working predominantly with depression and um, uh, a lot of addiction, and uh, using uh, uh, modalities like loving kindness and compassion meditation, as well as mindfulness uh, in my day to day life. So, that's an overview of kind of what what I'm about. Uh, Andrew, you want to just say a few words about what what you're about? Jangubala, I mean, sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's good to be here. What's up, man? Make yourself comfortable. Come on in. I first want to say hi to anyone that's new and welcome. Um, Yeah, we started this meditation center about 13 or 14 years ago, and uh, it was a a once-a-night sitting group that we rented from another Dharma community in 12th South in Nashville, back when you could afford a meditation center on 12th South. And uh, a lot of days, our teacher, Dave, would show up and no one would come and he would put $20 in the bowl and he would leave. And he did that a lot. And then a couple people came and then a core group of about five to seven. And after about a year they started, that's when I started coming. And there were about probably eight to 15 people that were regulars at the time. And then Dave took a risk and he opened a meditation center off Charlotte Pike back when you could afford a meditation center on Charlotte Pike. And took a risk because we had our own center and we were like, well, what are we going to do with this place? We have every night of the week, 24-7, this luxurious flooding basement in the bottom of the restaurant equipment warehouse. Many of you all have been there. And a couple years later, Dave moved out west, and I became the guiding teacher at what's now called Wild Heart Meditation Center. And a couple years after that, we moved here to East Nashville. Um, And so I'm a grateful member of this community. I think that's mostly what I'm about. Um, It's been a home to me for many years. It's been a refuge from periods of depression, uh, been a refuge from years of active addiction. It's been a place that is home. And so welcome to all of y'all. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it about me. Cool.
0: So yeah, ask me anything and, uh, we'll try to get through all the questions, but there's a good chance we won't, but here's the bowl. If you, uh, if you have it written, please uh, throw it into the bowl and we'll, we'll get to it. To go first,
1: (laughs) I heard in a talk recently that you already know all of these things that arise in meditation, but you have to be reminded. How long does it take to arrive? at these insights. So I heard in a talk recently that you already know all of these things that arise in meditation, but you have to be reminded. You know, the teaching that the Buddha offered is about the cultivation of wisdom. This word panya. And wisdom is not the same thing as intellect. It's not the same thing as knowledge as an idea. Wisdom is the intimacy with life. And we all have that. I think often for me, my mind, it gets in the way of my intimacy with life I don't know if you've noticed in your own mind, but my mind doesn't tend to want to stay present. It wants to proliferate. It wants to go into the future. It wants to think about the what-ifs or the if-onlys or the I'd-rather-bes. It wants to go into the past It wants to think about myself in relationship to other people, how I'm better than, how I'm less than, how I'm angry with, how I'm jealous of, how I'm afraid of. And I lose sight of the mind that's doing that. I don't see the mind that's thinking. I become the mind that's thinking. Mindfulness is really simple, actually. It's not... Again, an intellectual thing. It's simply an ability to step back and observe what's happening in the body and the mind. And we start to see that the mind is of the nature to think, that the mind arises. That sounds arise, feelings arise, sensations arise, smells arise, tastes arise, and that everything that arises also passes away. The mind tells a story one day and tells a different story the next. And so these insights that we learn in meditation are really primarily three. We learn that the mind is impersonal. It's not essentially who you are. And that's very tricky, but it's actually really practical. You know, I don't feel like I am my big toe, but I've suffered over my big toe when I've stubbed it. But I do often feel like I am my mind. But just like the air, the lungs breathe air, the mind thinks thoughts, the toe feels feeling, the heart beats, the lungs breathe, the mind thinks. And one of the insights that we develop through meditation is the ability to step back and to see the mind as impersonal, it's just a phenomenon. But when we start getting caught up in buying the narrative that the mind's telling us in the moment, we suffer. Sometimes the voice in my head isn't even my own voice. Sometimes it's a nagging boss voice. Sometimes it's a excited kid voice. Sometimes it's a fearful voice. So one of the insights we develop is that the mind is impersonal, that all phenomena, all experience is impersonal, that all phenomena, all experience is impermanent. Nothing lasts, nothing lasts. We know this one. This one's a little easier to get behind. We've all seen the bumper sticker, the only constant in life is change. We know that intellectually, yes. Change is inevitable. I know that. But when change happens, this mind often resists. It craves permanence. It wants things to be predictable. You ever notice that? We don't do well with uncertainty, but we live in an uncertain world. And if I could just figure out what's coming next or where I'm going to be next or what I want to do next or what's in five years or my next goal or my next plan or my next promotion, then I could feel safe about where I'm at today. And all of this bound up in impermanence and the impersonal nature of experience is this craving for permanence. You know, because we live in an experience of constant change, the mind has a hard time going with the flow, as we say, letting it be. You know, so a lot of this, what happens is the Buddha calls it running around in this and that. The mind gets caught up in trying to create permanent satisfaction in impermanent conditions. We try to find the partner that will make us happy, or the job, or the promotion, or You know, I could meditate if my mind would stop thinking. Well, the mind isn't the problem. The mind is impersonal. The mind just thinks. It's not something you're trying to get rid of. It's not a problem. We're not trying to get the experience to be any different. We're trying to accept the experience as it is always. That's hard, though. So that's why we practice. So we know these things. Accept, accept. Right now, it's like this. Sure, engage, meet the experience with kindness, with compassion, try to have discernment, try to have wisdom. Buddhism is not about being some disconnected numb void. It's about having an open heart. So we're affected by the world. We want to engage with the world. But we also got to let the world happen and stop trying to control it. These insights we know, but we have to remember. It's a humbling practice. So when do you arrive at these insights? Every moment that you choose to. Over and over. I wish there was an easier way, but... But it's always available. In Zen Buddhism, the last thing I'll say is, they say, Dharma doors are infinite. I vow to enter them all insights the truth is infinite every moment William Blake Blake says (laughs) we teach teach
0: enough so I know exactly what he's going to (laughs) say that you can
1: find the world in a grain of sand right so I'll shut my mouth thank you what is that poem yeah
0: to find the world in a grain of sand and in, in eternity in a wild flower. Uh, yeah, trying to remember that poem. Oh. Hmm. How can we use the anger, hurt, and confusion at the world... And channel it to be better.
1: Mm.
0: How can we use the anger, hurt, and confusion at the world and channel it to be better? Mm. Yeah, from my experience, this is such a broad uh, and relatable experience. The anger, hurt, confusion—you all have any of that for the world right now? Yeah, yeah. And how can we channel that, right? And I think it's even looking at these layers: anger, hurt, confusion, right? And it's almost like at the top, what do I experience first? Yeah, anger. Anger, and to do a certain sense, if I can sit with that anger and understand that anger, I can understand what's what else is here. What's underneath this anger? Well, it's hurt. Yeah, I'm hurt right now. Yeah. So when we can start having these layers unfold through compassion, we start to understand a little bit more clearly. So as anger arises in me, can I observe it, not judge it, not try to change it or control it, just observe anger with an open heart? And then the unfolding of what's really calling to be felt is this hurt. And can I be with my hurt directly? As the pain and confusion of the world exists, it exists in this very heart right now. So can I have compassion, non-reactive, nurturing, kind love towards the pain I'm experiencing right now? Because what happens is when the pain arises, that hurt arises, it's natural human tendency to fight, to get rid of, to push out. But if we can shift that to a kind presence with our own hurt, we can now approach the world with a kind presence. The willingness of the courage of compassion to act out of compassion rather than violence, rather than hatred. And from my experience, that's where a lot of great direct transformation happens. I think it's when we get that confusion on how to act properly in the world. It's the, the courage that comes from compassion. And this is a, a small example. I was recently with my band uh, last week. We were playing a show, and I, I let the openers share my amp. So yeah, you can use my amp. And somebody... Uh, they put a beer on my amp. That's a no-no, you know, you're gonna spill the beer on the amp. That's just you know, a no-no. So as I'm sitting there watching this guy put the beer on the amp, my bandmates see me, see him put the beer on the amp, and they're like, that's just fucked up. I can't believe like he, he borrowed your amp and he's gonna put a beer on it. Like, what a what a you know, what a stupid thing for him to do. And, and they're just talking shit from afar. You know what I did? I go. I walk up to the stage, tapped him and said, hey man, can you take the beer off? And he was like, oh yeah, my bad, I'm sorry. It's almost as if like, that uncomfortability of being direct with kindness is just too much. So we'd rather just hide in our corners with hatred and anger and criticize everybody. Rather than compassionately going, okay, this is not okay. And I'm not going to act out in harm. I'm going to help so I'm gonna help that guy and help him realize that he put a beer on my amp. Let me help you. You're not doing that right. And so we act out of compassion. Compassion for myself and compassion for him. I don't want him to look like an asshole for my friends. Right? So he took the beer off. Right? So if we can act out of a place of concern rather than fuck you, defeat, crushing, I think that's actually how we can uh, you know, do better, I think. Better internally, externally, in both. And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, sometimes we, we turn into Buddhist doormats, right? Like, oh, this radical acceptance and it is what it is and, the, you know, there's dukkha, so whatever. I don't think that's what this practice is. I think this practice is act out of compassion with the heart of kindness, not necessarily dismissing what we're feeling. But first things first, feel that hurt. Feel that hurt, and when you can find a space of compassion for that hurt, maybe respond to the world's hurt with that same compassion. If you want to make peace in the world, we need to find peace within our own hearts first. So that's what the beauty of meditation is, when we can find peace with the pain in our foot. That same pain that's the pain in our foot is the same pain happening out there. So finding a peaceful presence. Sure, we don't have to wait till we're perfect. We'll make mistakes. I've made many mistakes. And when we make mistakes, oh. good old forgiveness and apology. Yeah. Another yeah. uncomfortable conversation. So I really think kindness and willingness to be uncomfortable is key. Yeah, anything you have on that? Yeah. Good question. Thank you for that.
1: It's blank. <laughs> Damn. The, the, the best dharma <laughs> Oh, man, it's a good one. Any recommendations? They knew I was going to have to answer this one, too. Any recommendations on how to observe a deeply depleted slash depressed mind? (laughs) (laughs) I just did that for about 30 minutes. (laughs) Depression is something I'm uh, familiar with. You know, i think it's important to remember that depression's not a thing it's an experience and it's kind of like a wild animal the animal doesn't always act the same way all the time so the answer to that's really simple with curiosity with curiosity because we think the depression is a problem and we think that it acts a certain way all of the time but it doesn't Sometimes it feels like lethargy, sometimes it feels like self-doubt, sometimes it feels like hopelessness, sometimes it feels like no emotion, sometimes it feels like sadness, sometimes it feels like loneliness. There are a couple observations I've had about depression over the years. One is that it tends to have these three voices. It says, I've always felt this way, I'm always going to feel this way, and I'm the only one that feels this way. Depression tricks us into thinking it's this inevitable, permanent thing. And it's not. I think when we're in it, though, it's really hard to have that insight. So you can't force that insight. You've just got to bear with it like it's a friend and to learn how to be kind to the thing that is unkind to you. It's like being in a abusive relationship. You've got to stand up to the depression sometimes and say, hey, I'm tired of your self-doubt and your stories about me being unworthy and unlovable. And I know I've got to live with you, but I'm not going to listen to that today. The Buddha says the antidote to all of these kind of afflictive mind states that we experience There's several different antidotes, but one that's common to them all is wise friendship and suitable conversation. Community, relationships. The last thing I want to do when I feel depressed is be around other people because I don't feel like myself. Hence kind of why I'm depressed is because I feel like I have to be a certain way to be around people. Mm -hmm. very insidious depression is very it's a deluded mind state and delusion is the most formidable of the three poisons of greed hatred and delusion those are the traditional ones in buddhism because it's the one that's the hardest to recognize we don't know when the mind's deluded by the very nature of it so we've got to be patient with it be curious with it And try to love on it a little bit. And don't believe it. Basically, everything your mind says when you're depressed is just not right. (laughs) And that's hard. But over time, you gain more confidence in that practice. You know, some days I wake up and I'm just like, I can't really trust anything that's happening in here today. That's okay. You can just be like, this is all bullshit. I'm seeing through a muddy windshield. So... Try to be kind, try to look up at the cash register, say hi to the person, try to kind of pop out, see a little bit of the world outside of that windshield as much as you can that day. And it will subside with time. Last thing I'll say is, you know, I'm a mental health therapist and I'm a big fan of mental health support. So, not just mindfulness, not just sangha, community. You know, if you need to use the modern resources of psychotherapy and medication, you know, they've come a long way. I'm not saying everybody has to or, you know, but uh, the biggest fear people have around medication is they feel two things. One is that they're using a crutch. Well, you don't think of food that way, you have to eat. That changes how you feel. You feel better when you eat. It's not a crutch. You need it. Medicine, you may need it for a period of time. It may help you for a period of time. That's okay. Give it a try, be open-minded. The second thing people tend to feel is they're afraid it's gonna change their personality. Well, the depression's already changing your personality. So your personality is changeable and you won't lose your essence. It may not be for you at the end of the day, but I like to say this because we don't talk about it a lot. We've got to break the stigma around some of these things. So if you're on medication or you need medication, there's nothing wrong with you. Good for you. And if you choose not to and you are fine with that, you know you can use other things to help support you. Nothing's wrong with you. Doing great.
0: How do you deal with PTSD through meditation? Do you want to take this one? You want me? You're
1: the therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um I'll try to be brief. So I think there's a balance in using labels, like I said with depression, the same thing. I think that can be helpful to validate what you're experiencing. You know What you're experiencing is what you're experiencing is neurobiological. It's not your fault. You're not making it up. We can talk about it. It's a shared experience. Other people have it too. That's about as helpful as the label is, right? But PTSD, it's a diagnostic criteria. I think what we're talking about is trauma. How can you use meditation to help you with trauma? Well, the Buddha is a pretty radical teacher. He kind of first normalizes and says saying that no one gets out of this life without it. You know, you're all going to experience birth, aging, sickness, death, separation, loss, getting what you want, getting what you don't want. Your boundaries are going to be violated in a variety of different ways, some more severe and more traumatizing than others. This is the realm that we live in. We live in a world where there is pain and suffering. And that if you experience that, there's nothing wrong with you, that it's actually shared. And I would say what the Buddha is saying is you've got to be honest and be willing to find people that you can talk to about that. Because the mind will tell you that your pain is your own. And so... Trauma, in this kind of sense, in the Buddhist sense, is something that's shared. It's something that's normal. Trauma symptoms are different for different people. You know, you're stuck in kind of a high arousal state of fight and flight, or you find that you're kind of in a state of immobility and freeze and find yourself dissociated a lot. Um, You may have, you know, things that trigger panic and you feel... Hypervigilant vigilant and always kind of prepared for something bad that's going to happen. Um, meditation can help you to stay regulated in your nervous system, but you might want to adapt the practice. So you may want to do more of the heart practices, loving-kindness meditation, compassion meditation, Uh, You may want to keep your eyes open when you meditate instead of closed. You may want to do walking meditation instead of sitting meditation. So you got to kind of work where you're at and find ways to try to stay present with what's unpleasant, because the only way out of trauma symptoms is through them, unfortunately. The only evidence-based way to treat trauma is exposure therapy. So you have to actually get back into your system in a regulated way and process the things, the ex- felt experience of what's going on there. Your body is trying to resolve something that it didn't get to. It's trying to protect itself from something that it didn't get to protect itself from. So it's throwing errors. It's throwing that protection error all the time, not even, even when you don't need it. So if you can find a way to be in the body, feel those impulses in a regulated way, usually with a therapist is beneficial, someone that's trained in that. You know, you don't want to just go the path alone like the cave hermit, go find yourself a cave and sit and meditate. You probably work your way through it, but it'd probably (laughs) be pretty damn uncomfortable. That's what I did. I went on my first retreat and just re-traumatized myself and... Dysregulated for about a year and a half, and then I went to therapy, and I was like, "Oh, this is a little bit easier and softer." (laughs) So, for what it's worth, but mindfulness really helps. I mean, because what it is is it's helping you observe and be embodied in your get back into a familiarity and an ease within your body. So, just some thoughts.
0: Okay, I wanted you to give the the technical because yeah, that's I think it's a a very important uh, thing to approach with care, right? And at the same time, approach, right? With approach with care, that Dharma practice is kind of like exposure therapy, that we are exposing ourselves to the suffering and and, and knowing that fully. So where I started my meditation practice, uh, many of you know this, was with veterans. My first teacher, he uh, is a Vietnam veteran and through his process of recovery um, with Teknat Han, uh, he became a fully ordained Soto Zen priest. And he welcomed me into his community, even though I'm not a veteran. But I sat in meditation with people that experienced a lot of post traumatic stress, people missing limbs. And he wrote a book called At Hell's Gate, and he even says, like, when it's raining. Before I can even notice it's raining, I have to go through images of teenagers yelling for their mothers, for their fathers, for their girlfriends. Images of war as people are dying, as trees go up in napalm. I have to walk through a war just before I can come back to know it's just raining. And that's where these triggers start taking us. That rain reminds this body of the past. And if we can keep on coming back to the present, we can find peace. And what peace is sometimes isn't necessarily what we think peace is. That we can, he would often say, find peace within the conflict. That our hearts may be conflicted, our bodies may be conflicted, but can we be at peace with this conflicted body? Can we be at peace with this conflicted mind? Finding peace in the unpeacefulness. So that post-traumatic stress, he even says, don't say D. It's not a disorder, it's quite orderly. These events happen and this is the outcome. We can see the karma of what is arising here and we can bring in a sense of understanding. And so as soon as we are finding a way to be at peace with our unpeacefulness, we develop that karma to have an indiscriminate kindness. That loving kindness is indiscriminate. So even as we feel these difficulties of trauma, We can approach with peace. So that's the key.
1: Um, Yeah. Cool. You do know.
0: (laughs) How to start over. (laughs) So uh, this reminds me, like, when I was first uh, getting sober, there was, like, this old-timer I worked with and we worked at a restaurant and he was like this old hippie guy and uh it was a very busy restaurant in Destin, florida and we would get our ass kicked all the time and we would have this like fuck this we we, we called ourselves team Fe, fuck everyone right and we get in this terror in the movie like, team Fe, fuck everyone and it was just like the case of just like burning it all down and he would uh stop it all I and mean being like oh you can start your day over anytime you want and it's like all right the old timer has to drop the cliche that brings us back you can start your day over anytime you want so how do i start over uh, yeah you could start over anytime you want uh, because when we start looking at some of these gifts of impermanence we realize that there isn't it's this that change is constant change is constant So it is already starting over and over whether you acknowledge it or not. So that's how you start over. It's already starting over. Things are changing over and over again. And I understand like we may not like the way things are right now. And that's, I think that's okay. Where we can start seeing where our power is. So we may not have power over, you know, things like traumatic impulses that we say, and sometimes depression and some of these really heavy topics but we do have power of how we relate to these things. So we can start over and start a new path. If you find your mind going towards fuck everyone, and you're inclining your mind towards fuck everyone, the next moment's going to have a thought that says fuck everyone. So stop, stop going into that thought process. You can start right now, start over and go towards kindness. And then the more and more we start over and say, nope, not going to fuck everyone, going towards may they be at ease, may they be happy. And that's when we start over and that's the new path they're going in. And so through mindfulness, we can check on what we're putting forth, because what we do in this very moment dictates the next moment. So, uh, yeah. Lightning round? Yep. Okay, lightning round. One
1: word, one sentence. What is self-love? I don't know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, feel myself, I, I feel myself desiring less than I used to. Is there a way to see if it is growth or if it is depression? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I wish I knew this. Uh, so, you know, desiring less, right? Uh, I think desire is a helpful thing. a a, a dream is a wish your heart makes i'm a disney guy so follow your dreams follow your desires but when it turns into craving that's where we got to look out for so when your sense of well-being is reliant on getting the thing that is trouble so please don't desire less you know be content with what you have but when that craving arises I think that's the difference. That was I'm not, not dismissing
1: up. your question. What is self-love? I really don't know. I'm still trying to figure <laughs> out. I hope you kind of figure. I hope you figure that out too. Uh, what does progress look like in the beginning? The Buddha says the Dharma is good. It's beautiful in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. It's different for everyone, but it's always beautiful. How does arahatship?
0: or more generally, enlightenment figure into your practice? Oh, so it figures very well into my practice um, that I worked with the Venerable Paniwadi for for years and she worked within this four path model of uh, awakening. I love the early Buddhist tradition because it's very practical. Sometimes enlightenment is this thing that people just fantasize about and never really come to what is enlightenment. Early Buddhist path, there is a path. I would suggest reading Progress of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw. if you want to know more about the path to hotship or Awakening. Great question.
1: How to find equanimity in times of stress and anxiety? Slow down. Your stress and anxiety always has speed to it. There's usually two things. You don't have enough Time and you don't have enough space, so give yourself more of those two things: more time, more space. Everything in you will resist that answer, but that's what you need.
0: <laughs> how to surrender to detach relating with others? Um, yeah, um, I don't, I don't know. I think it's in the question how. Detached relating to others, I I think it goes into, like, even what Andrew said about depression, that we feel like we have to show up a certain way. So show up the way you are, even if you are feeling detached from others. Just still show up with that sense of detachment with others and having that sense that it's okay. It's okay if you
1: feel detached with others uh is it misguided to meditate as a preparation for when shit gets inevitably bad in life as a preparation for lately i've been feeling like a buddhist doomsday prepper good for you (laughs) that's awesome i love it welcome to the club so the answer to that is no keep preparing (laughs) Uh,
0: mindfulness of depression tools for being uh with numbness
1: i think yeah we 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 kind of covered that. that yeah but if you wrote that, I feel you. I love you. <laughs> Romantic sexual cravings that you, quote, quote unquote, should not have. Mm. So there's a difference between having a craving and acting on a craving. If I had to project my feelings and emotions to this whole room and you were to see everything I've ever thought and everything I've uh, ever felt, you would think I'm a really awful person. But over time, I've come to know that that's just the nature of the mind. And I think if we projected all of our thoughts and feelings we've ever had to the entire room, we would all be pretty awful people. We have pretty awful minds some of the time. And the mind thinks some pretty fucked up things. It's just a thought. But how long you stay in that thought, mindfulness can help you step out of it. You've got to see its destructiveness. It's just a thought. It's not a problem that it arose. But you don't have to stay invested in the thought. Because the more you stay there, the more that thought builds into a craving. And the more that craving builds, the more likely that you can act on it or react from it. So... distinguish the difference between having a feeling and getting caught in clinging to the feeling, indulging in the feeling. And uh, if you're not acting on the feeling, there's no problem. It's just a feeling, just a thought, no no problem. You're not going to hell. (laughs) How to open myself to the universe,
0: to be still and listen. How to be still and listen. And uh, if we look at the teachings on mindfulness that the Buddha outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta, I really appreciate some of the language around this. And where he says, one trains thus. Training, that if your mind is not still and you want it to be, and I think it's very wholesome to want your mind to be still and listen, you train, train, Uh, getting why I meditate every morning. And if I want my mind to be still, I train my mind to be still because when we discover the power of karma, that our minds are simply habits. So if we create a habit in our mind to stay still, it will continue to be still. If your mind isn't still, that's okay. You're not gonna be able to hate your mind into being still, bringing ease and understanding. If I continually come back to my breath, I'll make that habit and it'll be easier over time. So just recommitting yourself over and over and committing yourself to a daily meditation practice Uh, over and over and that will be the training it just takes time and training it's like going to the gym
1: last one compassion towards anxiety and insecurity that leads to hurting others well you're well on your way because you're seeing what's causing you to hurt other people which is you're struggling to have compassion for anxiety and insecurity so you're in a good place stay there the other person isn't your refuge wow wow you know, and so stop making your insecurity their problem to fix. It's hard, you know. I I fall into that too, but they're not going to be the one that can fix that. You don't feel safe. That's what insecure means. You don't feel safe. That other person doesn't. They can't provide that for you. Your compassion will. You got to be your own loving presence to yourself. Spend time with yourself. Take a break from that person for a day. Go in the park. Be by yourself. Tell yourself you love yourself. Do the things that you've always wanted to do with yourself and for yourself. The more you do that, the less insecure you'll feel. It's hard, easier said than done, but some words of advice, yeah. The We've got how much end. time? We've got five, five minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, we'll just open it up for a couple minutes. Any questions or comments? If you have any comments, please speak from your own personal perspective, respecting I statements, no advice giving. And if we missed any questions, we just got a few more minutes. Any uh, questions or comments, just raise your hand and we'll call on you.